You're listening to the Depends on How You Look at It podcast. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. And I'm your host, Isaiah Burridge. Well, thank you for tuning in to Depends on How You Look at It. Today, we're going to be answering the question, does amillennialism require partial preterism? And I'm going to be playing a discussion I did with my friend Nick Potts. He is one of the moderators of the Amillennial Facebook page. He also participates in a show called The Gospel Forum. All-around good brother. I met him in groups many years ago, and um, he's just a really, really awesome guy. He goes to the text. Um, He's not merely bringing in his presuppositions and saying that's the way it is. He goes to the text and shows why he comes down on the view he does. So we're going to be addressing partial preterism, uh, idealism, the book of Revelation, the dating of Revelation, and a lot of the texts that partial preterists point to to say that their system is the correct hermeneutic to understand New Testament prophecy. So it's a long discussion, but this is just the way it is. This is a very complicated topic. And I'm really thankful for my brother, Nick, who took two hours to just jump into the weeds. Uh, So thank you, Nick, for taking the time to really illustrate how the Bible is not merely just Old Testament and New Testament, but that it is a unit. God's Word is a unit. The whole counsel of God informs us of all these topics. And at the end of the day, I think you really show how futurism and preterism aren't necessarily opposed to one another if we can see this the way the Spirit of God inspired it to be. So I hope everyone enjoys this episode. Well, I am honored to have my friend Nick Potts on the show to discuss amillennialism and partial preterism. Nick, before we jump into the discussion, I'd love for you to tell the listeners about yourself, some of your ministries you're involved with. Um, I met you through the Millennial Facebook page, and we have some friends in common, and I know you're very active within a lot of things. Uh, you, we, we've probably postponed this podcast two or three times now, but I'm really happy you're here. So what, what does your world look like as far as your ministries and day-to-day activities? Sure. Uh, as far as day-to-day activities, um, I actually don't work uh, in full-time ministry. Um, so uh, so that I think that's sometimes the harder part because a lot of these studies have to be done outside of work and, sure. um, you know, or any time that I get in that regard. You're bivocational. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, I'm not even paid for ministry. That's, that's a tough Oh, part. no, completely are they muzzle, here. Are they muzzling the ox while you tread the grain? Um, I, they are investing, <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but as far as, uh, ministries, so my primary ministry is my, uh, is both my family, uh, which is me and my wife and uh, my local church. Um, anything that anybody sees me do online is always secondary. Um, I've, you know, some people may have even noticed that I've pulled away uh, quite a bit as of late, just because, you know, there's been a lot of stuff going on at my local church body that needs my attention. 
So, uh, yeah, that, I feel like I haven't seen you doing as many eschatology videos in the group anymore. Yeah. And that's, that's with all of us, uh, too. Um, you know, guys like Moses, who is a full-time pastor, uh, Weston, um, you know, he, he's not a pastor, but he's, you know, got his stuff going on. I know Zach's been really busy as well. So, you know, um, you know, and there's, there's more admins and moderators in there. So it's just, Mm -hmm. you know, people have been, you know, really busy. So, you know, it's just all in all, we have to remember it's a Facebook group, right? It's social media. Uh, it's not the like, and maybe the church universal, but it's not the local body. And our primary sure. um, focus must always be the local body. So, so with that, uh, so yeah, so some of the, uh, you know, other stuff that I do is I'm a moderator for the millennialist group uh, on Facebook, um, kind of a large group, I think. Uh, a little over 5,000, maybe approaching yeah. 6,000. I feel like it grows every day. I feel like I see somebody saying, thanks for accepting me, you know. Yeah, yeah and it's, you know, it's been a joy to... The awakening you know, of amillennialism. <laughs> yes. Uh, you know, it's, you know, we like to look at it as, you know, we we bring some in, we send some away, mm-hmm. and we, we notice that the the wheat grows with the weeds, so... <laughs> it does. I I have exited the group once or twice just because I felt like anytime I would try to discuss something in charity, you'd have somebody come on there just be a just a tad aggressive, yeah. and I'm like, dude, I don't know you. <laughs> like, I'm yeah. not trying to change your mind. Like, here's the way I yeah. saw that passage. I'm not making a dogmatic claim, but you yeah. know, that's that's internet 101. What are you gonna do? Exactly. You know, social media really, you know, people get really, you know, aggressive and I'm like, you know what, I'm getting too old for this. I'm getting too old for that. And then, uh, there's a group, uh, of some local guys, uh, around my area. We started something called the gospel forum. Um, so we have a podcast and articles and stuff like that. I haven't contributed as much to it just because, um, I've had like you know, some personal stuff going on as of late, but fortunately things are kind of clearing up with that. And, uh, I've written a couple articles that I'm not going to say what they are because they haven't been posted yet. So, Oh, okay. Well, I look forward to that. Well, I just want to thank you for, uh, your social media outreach because while it's not the local body and I'm really happy that my wife and I have been able to, uh, get back in a local church after my health battles during the pandemic and during my cancer battle, things like your group on the millennial uh, page where you guys would do videos about certain verses and have uh, like a, like almost like a panel discussion. Yeah. It was very edifying for me just to keep my brain still functioning within my faith, not being at church. Yeah. Um, because I, I was teaching Sunday school at um, the church I grew up at and but I got sick and then the world shut down all at once. And, uh, man, it's just hard to believe that it's two years later, but things are looking up. But I wanted to thank you for that outreach. That's how I got to know you. And, and honestly, how I got educated in a lot of the topics I've talked about on this show. Yeah. Well, praise the Lord. Well, if that's a good introduction, do you mind if we jump into the topic of the day? Yeah, let's go for it. All right. So on today's episode, we're going to be talking about what is partial preterism. This is going to be episode four or five in my amillennial mini-series about all the issues that encompass 
uh, eschatology. So I want to start out just defining what we mean when we say, what is partial preterism? I want to express my general annoyance that we even have to call it partial preterism, because historically speaking, you could refer to yourself as a preterist, and it would not raise the same concern it does now. Why? Well, because in the last century, there has been a heretical movement known as full preterism, or often labeled hyper-preterism by those of us who oppose it. Uh, we call it hyper because we believe they're taking something biblical, but putting too much emphasis on it, like hyper-Calvinism, and it leads to all these damnable things about the essentials of the faith that they basically reject one by one. It, it, it infects every doctrine one by one. So this is the dangerous belief that all prophecy, including the return of Christ and the resurrection of the dead, in some sense, occurred in AD 70, and that nothing remains to be fulfilled. Now, this is in sharp contention with the historic Christian faith. The second coming of Jesus Christ has always been seen as a physical return, at which point he will resurrect the just and the unjust and commence the final judgment. Now, within Christianity, there are varying opinions on what exactly that looks like, whether or not there will be this thing called a millennial kingdom in between the second coming and final judgment, or if a rapture will happen. Whatever the case may be, it is the orthodox position that the resurrection of the just and the unjust, the second coming, is the blessed hope of every Christian, whether they are alive or dead. And see, the hyper-preterist movement that denies all that began in the Churches of Christ denomination in the 70s uh, with a man named Max King. As time went on, this community insisted that they were truly preterists and that anything else was partial because it didn't see all prophecy as being fulfilled. So those of us who still hold to orthodox preterism must label ourselves partial preterists because of the polemical labels from hyper-preterists. So I apologize if that seems like a rant. But I find it really important to distinguish orthodoxy from heresy, especially when we're talking about something that can be as confusing as preterism. Okay, so what is partial preterism? Partial preterism is a method of interpretation that generally sees most biblical prophecy except the second coming of Christ as, be as being fulfilled in 70 AD. So they're still orthodox. They still believe that Christ is coming back. All good there. It is foundational for the post-millennial view, and a lot of amillennial believers are adherents to the tenets of it as well. I used to be. Um, it's an orthodox system that doesn't conflict with any of the essentials. The word preterism comes from the Latin word preter, which means that something is in the past. Now, most of the time, a partial preterist will believe that most of the events associated with the Olivet Discourse, which is found in Matthew 24, Luke 21, Mark 13, they believe that most of that is done and found its fulfillment in the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Now, there are nuances within the text for different people who adhere to this. However, the general idea is that the words of Jesus concerned that generation and have little to no relevance to us now. Partial preterists usually believe the book of Revelation was written before 70 AD, and that Revelation is mainly concerned with the destruction of the temple and the Neuronization of Christians in the 60s AD. Besides the Olivet Discourse and the book of Revelation, many adherents to partial preterism see a handful of texts also relating to the events of 70 AD, and it might shock you what they put in the past. So we're going to discuss that soon, but before we do, Nick, would you like to clarify anything on the par on the partial hyperpreterist distinction? Do you think I covered a fair amount in a short amount of time? 
Yeah, I, I think I think so too. And you know, I I would definitely add to the annoyance um, of um, full preterists uh, calling themselves full preterists. Um, I actually mm-hmm. tend to use the labels um, preterists and then hyper preterists because right. you know you you kind of mentioned it previously, but when you think of full preterist, you think of something that has kind of like a positive connotation to it. Um, it's like, oh, who wants to be half something? Right. Uh, but then when you think hyper preterist, like there's kind of a bad connotation. And frankly, um, hyper preterism is a bad thing. So we should think of it badly. Uh, so I think that should be displayed in even the labels uh, and language utilized to even label it, much less describe it, much less to refute it. Amen. And one of the problems we have is they take the physical resurrection that's promised to the believer, and they either spiritualize it as something in the past that had to do with just a corporate resurrection of Israel coming to God, or there have been some you know, in the preterist movement that say, well, actually, Jesus did resurrect physically some people. But now that's all over, and we're just in the new heavens and new earth. It gets really convoluted, yeah. and it starts to affect Christology because many of them actually deny that Jesus is physically uh, is is currently physically the God Man. That the 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 resurrection body, the 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 human body, was just something that was temporary, and it got blown apart during the ascension or something. Um, I, yeah. Sam Frost is very good with these issues because he came out of the hyperpreterist movement. Yeah. Yeah, I'm I'm familiar with uh, him and some of his uh, works, and which I really appreciate. You know, the Lord. You know, I, I don't agree with everything. You know, with Sam, but sure. Regardless, you know, I, I'm very thankful that the Lord pulled him out of that, uh, so that um, we who were never in that, we can examine what changed his mind specifically. Um, and you know, on the point, you know, what. Uh, hyper-preterist believe, um, there's one, you know, kind of popular dude, um, that has even argued that the, the, um, the saints that were raised from the dead, uh, when Christ died, that was the physical resurrection at the end of the age. Right. The ones that came out of the tombs. Yeah. Yep. I'm like, I've seen that tried to be, yeah. Yeah. That it's, it's funny how little it, well, then Matthew really didn't emphasize that well enough. Let's put no, it that really way. Didn't. Well, especially especially if um, if John uh, in John chapter eleven discusses this with uh, uh, Martha, and you know she's got this this massive um, eschatology. Really, uh, she really yeah. does. Um, that the resurrection of the body is the final glory of it all, and which we would agree. We just, she's right. We, yeah. <laughs> You know, she, she's right. And, and then no, none of the three gospel writers discuss it. Uh, you know, um, Luke, Mark, or John, you know, don't discuss it. Matthew, I think has like what, two verses on it. And then yeah, that's it's, it. It's it. And considering how well he knew his old Testament and how much is imported into the gospels, you think oh, he'd absolutely. go, by the way, this was fulfillment of the, you know, well, exactly. You're right. Uh, not only like did he know it, but he even said this was to fulfill this. This was to. He says that over and over. Out and over. of Egypt, it, I called my son. Yeah. Yeah. You know. Uh, so so yeah. So I, I would 
I would maybe not the best Christian attitude. I would probably scoff at the person uh, who utilizes that. Um, That's just, that's very, um, that's very poor um, hermeneutics and exegesis of the text. And it's a very clear example of eisegesis. Yep. The reading, reading your conclusions instead of letting the Bible decide your conclusions. Uh, Yeah. I've I've seen some really uh, bothersome stuff from even uh, guys in our camp, guy. Uh, um, yeah. So we'll we'll get to that. So yeah, let's talk about what is convincing because while that's all heresy, and we can look at our Bible, and Sam will tell you, well, I realize that John says that all that come to me, I will never cast out, and there's a finite number of the elect, but there's no way that could be true with the way preterism puts everything. And he goes. Yeah. And then he says, I read in Ecclesiastes, he put eternity on our hearts, and he goes, oh, my God, I w-, and he woke up. He just woke up from Scripture. Yep. And his, his testimony is really powerful because it sends chills down your spine. He quotes just a couple really simple Scriptures, and that's what pulled him out of such a—truly, tr- Nick, I think it's a damning heresy. I really do. Yeah, I would too. Um, I, I and I don't, I don't like to say that about everything I just don't like. Yeah. Um, but yeah. yeah, I mean— you know, I, I'll call anybody a heretic, but right. damning heresy, that's, I, I can't joke about that. <laughs> right, right. That, that's too much. But yeah, hyper preterism puts you outside the faith, like, and, and who do you say that I am? Yeah. Yeah. I think it, they deny the, who do you say that I am? And that's kind of yeah. my test of, can I call this a brother or not? But yeah. so one of the most convincing arguments from the Orthodox guys, whom I used to identify myself with, partial preterists, is how they handle the words of Jesus in Matthew 24, Luke 21, Mark 13. These are the gospel accounts, the Olivet Discourse, and our premillennial friends generally see this as a description of a future tribulation, perhaps some nuance to make Jesus relevant to his audience. However, partial preterism makes a really good case that these events have come and gone, and for many years I considered myself partial preterist mainly because of this passage. And I admit, I think I was overreacting to my dispensational upbringing. Um, But I'm rethinking even those assumptions. So I realized most of my attraction to this view was because of my premillennialism background. So Nick, I know that we don't have the time to exegete the entire discourse. You have a finite amount of time. But I'd love to know your thoughts on how you see the how you see this important passage and why you told me personally that you have begun to move away from partial preterism. Is there a middle ground? And if so, this generation has to be taken seriously, um, but maybe perhaps not throwing the baby out with the bathwater. So where are you at on the Olivet Discourse now? So the view that I currently hold is called modified idealism. Um, which is very fancy, um, but let me break it down uh, briefly. Futurism would hold that this um, passage of the Olivet Discourse is a future event. Um, And when I say future event, I mean still future for us. Mm -hmm. Because even even the preterists uh, would say, well, yeah, it was a future event for those who heard it. Um, But it for us today, it is now passed, um, right. and it is concluded. Um, modified idealism, um, I would say that uh, it recognizes the strengths of both the futurist and the uh, preterist um, discussion, 
mm-hmm. and would say, okay, well, these two aren't necessarily mutually exclusive. So how do we um, synthesize this um, right. in, a, in a way that may, may construct a new view? Sure. Um, but it's not necessarily novel theology. Right. This isn't an invention. It's more of a harmonizing of two very opposing views. Correct. Correct. So, um, so the modified idealist would see the strength of this generation before this generation passes, you will see these things and you're like, Oh, uh, you can't really get around that. And, no. um, you know, the futurists would very often not, I want to, I want to not make general statements because sure. you're always going to find that guy. I'm a futurist and I don't believe it. Right. Okay, so much nuance um, here. Exactly. So, um, the futurist, a lot of times they end up switching this to that and it becomes that generation mm-hmm. rather than this generation. Um, and that feels contextually what, awkward. It, it does. Like when you, when you do read it, you're like, Oh, Jesus is answering a question at the beginning yeah. of Matthew 24. Cause right at the end of chapter 23, Jesus is in the temple and he has just displayed a bunch of woes to those leaders of uh, Israel. And then they're walking out of the temple and you know, the, the disciples are, you know, in awe, look at, looking at, the grandiose nature of the temple and uh, in Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. And Jesus is like, eh, it's all going to be destroyed. Soon. <laughs> and the yeah. disciples are bl- mind blown. They're like, what? Like, wh- what do you mean? Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, it's just not even a stone's going to be left on top of each. Lord, wh- when's this going to happen? When's it going to be the end of the age? And then Jesus answers that question, but, the disciples, when they asked the question, they saw it as one and the same. When is the end of the age and when is the temple destroyed? They saw that as a singular event. Whereas if you read the words of Jesus, he actually divides it up. Yeah, he Uh, seems to correct them in a way. Yeah, exactly. And, um, and I, you know, not to put words in the mouth of our futurists and preterist brothers, mm-hmm. um, but I believe that the preterists and the futurists tend to hold the same view as the disciples and not Jesus uh, at this point, um, because That's they, fair. they see the destruction of the temple as the end of the age, and preterists will actually actually argue that very point they they'll say that was the end of that old age yes and that's why i am moving away because i can't properly hold to that through the rest of the new testament it doesn't make any sense yep that and that was one of the biggest uh when when i no longer accepted that paradigm i was like okay i don't know if i can be preterist anymore Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it still took a little bit of time because, uh, uh, I, I no longer held to that, but I still, something still needed to be constructed in its place. Um, and the more I started studying eschatology, the more 
you see the dual reality of uh, what goes on on earth and what goes on in the heavenlies. Um, and a lot of times these things are simultaneous um, realities. Sure. But when you see a, I think one of the things that really got me is when I finally understood that um, an eschatological event doesn't necessarily mean a historical event. Um, okay. Whereas a historical event, you would say the destruction of the temple. Mm-hmm. That happened in 70 AD. Um, an eschatological event um, certainly can happen in history and, and does. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I wouldn't say that an eschatological event is isolated to a particular time in history. Rather, it is, um, it's isolated to a time period between the advent of Christ. Right. So what do I mean by that? I know that was really technical. Um, look, looking at the Olivet Discourse, for example, when Jesus is explaining, he said, when you start seeing these things, it will be the beginning of the birth pains. Mm-hmm. Um, one, he says, it's the beginning of the birth pains, not the culmination. Right. Uh, but two, when you think about birth pains, they continue over a long period of time. Right. And they get worse over time, yep. uh, which kind of deals with our millennial issues. D- depends on how you look at it. Exactly. <laughs> That's why my show's called that. <laughs> exactly. Um, so then the, you know, those birth pains, you know, they do get physically worse over time. Um, and they get shorter and shorter, you know, over time as well. Like, I mean, they get really rapid, really quick, um, prolonged and worse in, in its depth over time. Um, so the destruction of the temple, that was the beginning. And then we see persecution after persecution, after persecution, after persecution, you know, all the way up until 313 AD, right. with edict of Milan. Mm-hmm. And then people are like, Oh, the Christian church isn't being persecuted anymore. Right. Well, it's not being persecuted in the West, maybe, sure. But that still doesn't mean that it's a, a entirely pure thing. It's good that the church isn't being persecuted anymore. That's great. I, I don't want our brothers and sisters persecuted. Right. But with the um, the establishment of an empire religion, then then you introduce nominalism. Yep, and then we saw the papacy develop, and we saw a lot of things develop that, uh, frankly, that we don't even close to hold to as Protestants. Agreed. And I think one of the weaknesses that I I personally had, and sometimes still have, I'm having it right now as I look, as we're, we're, we're recording this on the Supreme Court leak day, and I'm looking at my own country going, oh man, is this it, Right. And, but guess what? There's people in China and there's people in uh, other countries that are dealing with things not even remotely connected to the Supreme Court abortion issue. Yeah. And they're still working in the kingdom of God. Yep. Exactly. And and I think that's one thing we have to be very careful. And I think, um, I think modern American Christians 
are the most prone to this. 100% agree. Which is why I swung so extreme, Nick, to a preterist position because I felt I wanted to wash myself of looking at everything through American history. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think, I think in part, I had that same reaction, but I didn't grow up dispensational. Um, okay. Really? Yeah. I, I didn't grow up a Christian, <laughs> first okay. of all. Okay. Uh, so I, I was raised Roman Catholic. Uh, so there is kind of an Amil. Right. Esque. Yeah. A little bit different because the, the, the Dispies tell us we didn't reform enough. <laughs> right. Right. I know. And then they'll say that to me, like, you still got those Roman Catholic roots. I'm like, yeah, probably. Yeah, we still but... got the Trinity, too. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, so I, I didn't grow up dispensational, but I've, I've read, name somebody, I guarantee you I've read. Charles somebody. Ryrie. Yep. Oh, absolutely. I think he was the first one I read on it. I think he's the best spokesman for classical dispensationalism. Uh, him and Walvard. Yeah, um, agreed. And then uh, followed closely by Dwight Dwight Pentecost. Yes, um, Pentecost. His, yep, his book uh, right over there. Um, it, says the, it says the Kingdom of God. Is that what he called it? Um, I think he had one called Kingdom of God. Uh, this one, uh, forgive me. Um, I'm gonna things to come. That's what things it was. to come. Okay. Yep. I'm like, man. I'm like brain farting on it. Um, I hear you, but it's thirties, man. (laughs) (laughs) Um, yeah, things to come. And then I think the tome, um, and I mean, it's, it's good. Uh, I don't agree with it. Like even a little bit, honestly, but, um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's, you know, good. Um, so yeah, I've read quite a bit of dispensationalism. Can't, can't really get around the paradigm of it. Um, and I think that's probably one of the biggest things and, uh, recognizing that, um, specifically within dispensationalism, the, uh, relationship of Israel and the church. Like I, I can't get around there. I, well, they're understanding that. I, I tell people, I, again, I don't mean this as a pejorative or to sound polemic, but I started really seriously reading my Bible being raised in that and i just came across some verses that i personally could not reconcile with it yeah and i've i've seen the reconciliations i see where they get around things whatever but like the reason i'm not a dispensationalist isn't because i hate israel israel or something like that not even close but but i realized as i started developing a um basic covenant theology hermeneutic yeah that you can't have god saying Here's the new covenant. This is what we're in, yet still be punishing and rewarding Israel by the old covenant. That doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that's actually one of the things that I, I have an issue with as well, uh, because it does seem to be, um, it, it does seem to have God operating on two different standards for two different people. 100. Uh, and with that said, they actually agree with that. Uh, oh, like, oh, they do. Proudly. Yeah. yeah. Like, yes, God has two two eschatological peoples but the bible um, doesn't <laughs> yeah that that's that's where i'm at i'm like no yeah. like no that the dividing wall was torn down and the two were made one brought near to the covenant right yeah Absolutely. And, 
And if you want to call that the covenant of grace, sure, Presby's, I'll, I'll give you that. But here's the thing. The covenant of grace is sure. the new covenant. And, yeah. Yeah. and we're all true believers are united in that new covenant. And there's not promises and curses for a people that don't acknowledge Christ. Yes, correct. That's all, you know. So that's that's what led me out of dispensationalism. That's why I don't want to argue with him anymore because it's not even just about the eschatology. It's more about like my soteriology doesn't allow for any of this. Yeah, which is which does make me confused uh, of a slight growing um, Calvinistic dispensationalism. MacArthur, uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, it, it does confuse me uh, because. They, I'll just say briefly, like, I think they have a very strange interpretation of Romans 9, um, yeah. 9 through 11 for sure, but specifically of 9. Um, so I, I agree. It's either it's either the children of the promise or not. And yeah. either the covenant yeah. was for those who had faith in Yahweh or not. But they seem to want to say, but all these carnal Jews are going to get saved and going to get their temple back. And, and it's like, what? Yeah, I, I, I don't. And I'm even OK with I, I don't personally agree with the reading, but it's one of those readings that millennialists can just lovingly disagree on. Yeah. I'm OK with people who read Romans 11 as a future restoration, a future salvific uh, miracle of a lot of Jewish people. Sure. I don't I have any problem with that like i'm not a race you know it's not a racist problem or anything like that no. i personally think paul is saying hey the way god is going to save everyone is throughout time and calling them throughout their lives and this happened with me i'm a jew and i'm proof it happens and yep. it's going to keep happening and thus all israel will be saved that's how i take it but yep. if you want to take it as a eschatological miracle good for you but what i deny is what follows is a res restoration of mosaic covenant no way yes yeah, yeah, no, no I agree, and and even Dwight Pentecost um, uh, has actually even gone on saying as much that with the um, with the establish uh, the reestablishment of the temple, there is the reestablishment of the Aaronic priesthood, um, including temple atonement sacrifices. Wow. Now, with that, he does say, well, these are actually memorial, but the problem is. Uh -huh. is He's actually citing Ezekiel chapters 40 through 48, which says explicitly um, a, uh, sacrifices made for atonement. And, you know, not to be, you know, not to be to to bleh, totally tongue in cheek. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if we want to take the text literally, you're not taking it literally. You're not taking it literally if, if you say it's a memorial right. sacrifice and not an atonement one. Now, my uh, some of the people in my life who hold to this, um, we've talked extensively about it, and they rejected the memoriam view in favor for what I think is technically the more biblical view. If you're going to have the sacrifice thing going on, mm -hmm. this is the best way to defend it. And that's the a lot of the Le Levitical sacrifices and washings and, and things were for purification. Yeah. And so the logic is, well, if Christ is going to be physically present on the earth and you have all these unbelievers who are in natural bodies, which don't ask me how they got in there anyway. But if they're going to be walking around with glorified people and, the, and, and God himself, they have to be ritually purified. Now, I think that's heresy. 
but it, it at least defends it in a more reasonable way, in a more literal way. Sure. And, and you know, talking hermeneutics here for a minute. Um, one of the things that is one of my biggest annoyances uh, with dispensationalists uh, specifically um, is that phrase literal. Oh, my God. Um, no. Because if you press any dispensationalist just hard enough, um, they actually um, they actually define literal as physical. Yep. Uh, it, it has really nothing to do with if it's something that's real or not. It's something mm-hmm. that's physical. And that that does present a little bit of a problem because it, it what it ultimately says is the physical reality is more real than the spiritual reality. Um, Which is antithetical to the New Testament. Agreed. Uh, when you read uh, Hebrews, both chapters 11 and 12, it actually says that the physical temple is actually a shadow of right. the spiritual heavenly temple. So the more real, if we want to go that route, the more real one would be the spiritual temple, which is the people of God. And the physical temple was a shadow. It was a temporary thing. So Amen. It, it, if we want to go that route, I, I don't necessarily like dividing physical and spiritual as if one is more real than the other. It, it, it's almost like Gnostic. Um, right. It's either Gnostic or uh, Darwinian uh, sure. materialist. And, and I don't think I don't think going to one or the other is the best approach for a Christian. Uh, it's because, not a false dichotomy. No, it's not. It, yeah. It's not. Um, and uh, so I don't think as Christians we should. Or it um, is a false it, dichotomy. I'm sorry. I, I knew what you meant. You're, sorry, it's buddy. It's not necessarily mutually exclusive. Right. Yeah. Sorry. But, Nick. No, you're good. Uh <laughs> I don't think as Christians, if we recognize we're like heading, you know, straight and we recognize that we're going the wrong way, we don't turn a 180 and just run. Right. No, you have to stop because if you turn 180 and then run the opposite direction, well, that could be the wrong direction too. Mm-hmm. Um, you need to turn, you know, 270 degrees and that's the right way. Um, so how do we do that as Christians? Sola Scriptura. Amen. That is the way to do it. 100%. Yeah, and uh, my pre-mail friends and family, this isn't a a hit piece on you guys, but we had to properly define uh, some of the hermeneutics here because we're getting into a text and a couple topics here that are very personal to people, but also it's – this isn't just eschatology. The way you look at some of these second coming passages, if you will – it actually starts affecting every part of your theology, whether we like it or not. And that's why I reject hyperpreterism, because a simple thing like, well, Jesus already came back, as simple as that might sound, it bleeds and, and becomes a growing cancer into other essentials. So I want to make sure my eschatology is in line with soteriology, with ecclesiology. Uh, that's why I'm a Baptist. Amen. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> and we all vote on it at the end of the day. And, uh, yes, we do. So, so Nick, going to the Olivet Discourse, mm-hmm. so you can read that and see 
that definitely was relevant to the generation to whom he was speaking. Yeah, but, but it is also relevant to me as a believer. Absolutely, because it's very clear that um, it says uh, a couple times that uh, ed- every tribe on the earth saw him. Mm-hmm. Uh, the preterist wants to argue that's that just the Jews. That's just the Jews. <laughs> yeah, every tribe of Israel saw yeah. him. I used to argue that. In fact, I still yeah. almost argued it with you, but I'm not sure I can really concretely hold to it. Yeah, but here's the problem, though, is um, when t- very, very often, and and I used to do this too, and, you know, by God's good grace, you know, I've had some good teachers that really started helping me uh, think of the whole scripture as a unit. Uh, mm-hmm. So that you can think of parallel passages simultaneously rather than because when we think all of that discourse, you think Matthew 24. Yes. Rather than thinking Matthew 24, Luke 21 and Mark 13 together. Right. Um, and there's a little phrase that Luke says um, that, you know, I, I haven't really had a good discussion with a lot of preterists uh, on this um, is until the time of the Gentiles is complete. Right. Yeah. And that phrase shows up in Paul too. Not, not, not exact, but but it's, you feel like he's hitting on the same thing. Yep. That shows up in revelation too. Right. Yeah. Revelation uh, chapter 11, uh, Mm -hmm. right at the beginning there. Um, so yeah, it, it, it's, and that to me, that can't simply Romans treading the Jews. Yep. Because that's what I used to think. Yep. But when I started to harmonize again, I like the word harmonize. Yeah. It feels like it's a really big thing. It's not a local thing. Yep, exactly. And that, that's probably one of the biggest things. Like when you see that, um, when you see the two comp- almost competing ideas, um, that preterism emphasizes this generation, but then the futurists uh, emphasize that, no, this is the second coming. Right. Uh, you know, well, then you can either go the hyper hyper route and say, well, okay, Jesus. Well, it is. <laughs> yeah, Jesus <laughs> yeah. came back already. Or you can recognize that um, that this generation was the beginning of the birth pains and they saw it. But it was a, you know, the word I like to use is a recapitulation throughout time. And like birth pains, they continue, get worse over time, get a little bit, you know, quicker in between each. um, And then is finalized with the birth of the child or the coming of the the Right. Exactly. Yeah. And I have been listening and reading some guys I was I used to read when I first started kind of coming out of dispensationalism but I'll I'll be honest with you I really got more drawn in by the the preterist guys like uh Gary DeMar yeah. Ken yeah. Gentry and I, I think I think they're really good brothers by the way but yeah um, I have been really immersed in GK Beale and Kim Riddlebarger and I love Beale they are and by the way they're two presby guys like I mean I would happily yeah. disagree with them on the whole uh, covenant of grace baptism thing, but I think they have, I think their hermeneutic is dead on 
on eschatology because it's like, well, yeah, this is relevant to everyone. It was relevant back then. It's relevant tomorrow. Um, and we'll, we'll get into that more, but so if you don't mind moving on, I'm sorry. And just real quick, uh, you had mentioned, uh, Ken Gentry, Mm -hmm. um, Dr. Gentry actually changed his mind about this passage. Um, Really? he, he used to say that this was about the, about 70 AD, but he, he actually argues now that Matthew 24, uh, is discussing the end of time, uh, Christ's second coming. Yeah. You know what? I think I read something where he was saying this was the start of realizing eschatology or something, something of that sort. And uh, because he was getting a lot of heat from hyper preterists saying, why don't you just go all the way? Why don't you just go all the way? Why don't you just go all the way? Yeah. And I, well, I think he had to reasonably conclude that they're right if he continues that very yeah. straight line. This can't be relevant to us hermeneutic. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. You know, uh, the, and we shouldn't necessarily uh, discount something because if taken to its logical conclusion, it can be bad. Sure. You know, again, solar Calvinism. Control. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, but with that said, um, partial preterism or orthodox preterism does in fact lay the hermeneutical groundwork for the hyper preterist heresy. It 100. truly does. And if, and if people disagree with me, go ahead and read David Chilton. Yep. Uh, uh, you can actually, watch him move into it. Yeah, absolutely. And he he slipped right into um, hyperpreterism shortly before he died. Yep. And, um, you know, and guys like Gary DeMar, Ken Gentry, and uh, even even Bonson. Uh, Bonson, before, yeah. Before I, mean, Bonson I, I think died. of him more of as an apologetic, but yeah, I, I think he did yeah. some stuff on this. Yeah. And, you know, uh, you know, they all were like, no, like, David, you are absolutely wrong. And David's response was, this is the logical conclusion. So and that's why we have to have ears to hear and not Darwin everything and, and look at it as purely physical. Yeah, exactly. I think that's I think that's a good thing you you reasoned with me on a few moments ago. So let's go to the next big uh, elephant in the room. The book of Revelation. Uh, sure. While I was attracted to the idea that Revelation was written before 70 AD, and if you listen to some of my first podcasts from two years ago, which it's hard to believe it was two years ago, but it was, mm-hmm. um, you'll actually hear me say that I was actually – I'm in the preterist camp on this. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm tw- I'll be 29 in June, and I, I, I um, want to signal my right to change my mind and be sanctified. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> so I changed my mind. Uh, bottom line, yeah. and so I yeah, was. And you you were saying that uh, recently your uh, interview with Stephen Boyce really yes, kind sir. of solidified that, right? One hundred percent. So I was attracted to the idea that Revelation was written before seventy A.D. and and not describing a future tribulation. I liked that swing because of what I grew up in. Many of the exegetical points from partial preterists failed to convince me, though, and here's what I mean. At this moment, I believe Revelation was written in the 90s AD. I'm not going to tell you a year because I don't know. And I take a very idealistic view of this book, and I highly recommend G.K. Beale's commentary, whether you're looking at the monster commentary or the more condensed readable version for laymen. Either one is wonderful. Um, But when I think about this particular topic, 
I feel idealism is most relevant to Christians, past, present, and future, and can find ethical meaning to their lives in the book of Revelation every day because it's about the risen king, and it's about him conquering through our lives, through history. That's why the historicists were kind of onto something, by the way. Um, I think idealism and historicism are – there's there's differences, but they're very close on on the way they see God being providential through time. Yeah, they're like, they're like cousins who look alike. Right. So, <laughs> um, you know, this isn't the nail in the coffin uh, about the book of Revelation. Um, it's not the nail in the coffin to our post-mill friends because, uh, f- frankly, Nick, you know that the post-mill, they have to have this book in the past. They have to have yeah. this book before 70 or else their system yeah. doesn't work. Yeah, well, um, I mean, even, even the preterist specifically. Really, really even the preterist, yeah. yeah. So it, it felt odd to me to rely on the date of a book to make a system work better. Yeah, and honestly, that's one of the reasons uh, that really shug- I struggled with as well. Uh, even even while I was still a partial preterist, um, I, I really, I had read a couple works, um, one of them being Ken Gentry's work, uh, you know. Uh, when Jerusalem um, Fell. When Jerusalem Fell. Yeah. Um, which is for those who haven't read good it. Good book. Yeah, it's a it's a really good book, and it, it's something that we all really have to dig into and think about. I 100% agree. Um, I, I don't want to I don't want to just pass it off because I disagree with it. Uh, no, sure. it's something that we have to you know really reconcile. Um, and we're not scaring people away from going to look no. at the stuff we disagree with. No, please. Um, I think go to the source and read what we're saying. Absolutely. Um, you know, mention David Chilton's uh, Paradise. Uh, regained um you know uh, he's got another one that's really common i can't remember the title offhand but days of vengeance days of vengeance thank you yep that's what it was um i was immersed man <laughs> yeah and uh but yeah ken gentry's book's really good on the topic but you know and he you know he gives a lot of evidences too but you know where it ultimately came back to me was that if this book was after 7080, was after um, the fall of Jerusalem. Preterism cannot be true. 100%. And I thought that was very shaky ground to establish a, uh, an entire hermeneutical lens based upon um, a possible dating of a book. Sure. I, I, I felt the same way, and then as I really looked at the internal evidence and external evidence, and so this is where Dr. Stephen Boyce comes in. I had a really awesome and thoughtful conversation with him a few weeks ago. It's the last episode of the podcast I did, or the second to last I did, and uh, I was under the impression that only one church father made mention to Revelation's date, and that it was Irenaeus um, you know, saying— uh, John saw these things not so long ago under Domitian, what was uh, late. Uh, So go back and listen to that. But the internal evidence as well, you'll hear things from the the, the preterists who say, well, see, John's told to measure the temple. That's got to be, you know, referring to the temple still standing. But if it's a vision, and Beale brings out that the measure of the temple passage has a lot in common with Ezekiel 40 through 48 because— 
as Michael Heiser says, John takes the Old Testament, kind of puts it in a blender, and then you get Revelation. Uh, yeah. I mean, uh, that's kind of true. Yeah. Yeah, because John just takes things, and you don't even always know what he's referring to, but it's something Old Testament. Uh, it's It can't be just su- such a wooden, literal—forgive the phrase here—a wooden, literal thing of I'm describing the temple— uh, uh, that's standing in Jerusalem because the measurements go more hand in hand with the spiritual temple. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree. And uh, not to mention, um, it's um, it has more of a uh, feel of the temple that's found in Revelation twenty one and twenty two. Amen. Um, because there is no dividing wall between the holy of holies and the people of God. Um, right. So that means there's only there's only just the walls of those who are in and those who are out. And then you have those who are outside the city uh, with fire, eternal fire, burning and gnashing of teeth, second death. Right. You know, you got that. Um, which is eschatology. It's not always about, you know. Sure. Uh, eschatology is the judgment. It's the new heavens, new earth. It's all of that. Exactly. Salvation um, and eschatology are intrinsically linked. Oh, absolutely. And, and I mean— Second Corinthians five seventeen says, "For you are a new creation, you who are in Christ. The old is dead, and the new now lives." Well, right. new creation. Yeah, I my body still that, hurts, Nick. I'm still waiting on that, right? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Your physical body uh, may be passing away, but your spiritual man is being renewed day by day. Amen. Um, so we, in a sense, are eschatological people. Um. And I like the way Beale puts this. He says, um, an eschatological, uh, and this is, Beale was one of the guys that really kind of helped me see the dichotomy between eschatological events and historical events. Mm-hmm. Uh, a historical event can be overturned, for example. True. You know, um, you know what we're seeing in the Supreme Court possibly sure. right now. Um, historical events can be overturned and reversed. An eschatological event cannot. Um and if we are a, well, since we are a new creation in Christ, that cannot be overturned. Well, what that, what does that mean? Mm. Can one lose the salvation? I don't believe so. No, no. Um, That's why I don't believe you can be in the new covenant with Christ intercession and be yep. uh, a false branch, a false convert. Yeah. Or, or somebody who has not displayed faith themselves. Sure. But, well, that's what I'm hitting at, but we're yeah, Baptists. That's right. <laughs> well, I mean, get them babies out that water right now. <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, I love I love Charles Spurgeon. He says, uh, uh, "There's no need to baptize babies, for they wet themselves already." <laughs> he and, was, uh, uh, yeah, I follow a quotes page, and he's got some good stuff, but. Oh yeah, but, but that's that's what I was saying earlier, and I know we're picking on our Presby friends, but they actually are more in agreement yeah. with us in these things than obviously yeah. our female friends. But yeah, the reason I, I I'm starting to back down from arguing real deep eschatology with people who are real seated in it, um, I just now try to recommend resources and throw out a few thoughts of Same. have you thought about this? But I re- I don't really want to write an exegetical tear apart anymore, right? Um, yeah. So that, that, like, that's a personal, like, that's a personal thing yeah. I deal with. Yeah. Yeah. 
Like if, because if it they're, encompasses if they're a hyper predator, I'll oh, sure. watch you all day. No, sure. That's well. The, I feel like I'm evangelizing, right? Yeah. yeah. I, I don't feel like I need to evangelize my family. You know, um, yeah. they're they're awesome Bible believing people. We just disagree on how things are going to wrap up. Big deal. So, yeah. but the reason I don't engage this with them is they're not Calvinists. They're not this. They're not that. They're your very standard Southern Baptists. Uh, read my Bible and love the Lord my God with all my heart and try to live a decent life people, right? Amen. So, so they think, you know, they kind of see me as I'm the intellectual, know-it-all Calvinist, and I do drift so, towards those things. I, I'll happily admit that. But when I start to disagree with people on eschatology, it's not simply a matter of, hey, we read this passage different in First Thessalonians. You think that's a rapture, and I think it's the second coming. It's a lot more than that. It's yeah. more that if I embrace your entire entire system and hermeneutic, well, I can't count on my salvation anymore. Yeah. I can't I can't count on the new covenant being the ultimate fulfillment of everything if the old covenant still got a place. Yeah. And that I can't live with that. And I believe the Bible steers me towards a uh, a caterpillar becoming a butterfly, if you will, of the yep. covenant. Yep. Uh, types and shadows. I feel that. Both both systems I disagree with with the Pedal Baptism and then obviously the premillennial scheme. I feel like both of them misunderstand types and shadows. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree. And and honestly, I think the I think the postmill uh, view uh, uh, misunderstands types and shadows uh, sometimes too. Um, you know, and I, I think I, I think our postmill uh, friends and brothers. Uh, let me be clear, brothers. Sure. Um, actually have the same issue that a lot of our dispensational uh, primo guys uh, have. And, and the reason why I think they have the same issue or the, the reason why I think they swing a lot of times from um, dispensational primo all the way over to post mill is because right. they both see the kingdom as something fiscal. Yeah. Because I, I don't think there's a, well, I'd have to read, but, I've seen some post mill guys not give me a nickel's worth of difference on Isaiah 65 with my pre mill friends. Yep, that's actually the passage. That's precisely the passage I was thinking about. Okay, Isaiah cool. 65. Um, you know, right there. It's you know the kingdom. You know is you know is here upon the earth. You know uh, the um, you know old uh, old men will die at a hundred. You know, and there's going to be right. babies born. Well, how are there going to be babies born if if people no aren't physical. given into marriage? And, mm -hmm that's not what the passage says. Like, I, I think it's pretty clear. Um, right. Otherwise, um, for those who, you know, don't know what I'm talking about there. Uh, actually, Dr. Beal has a really good article. It was, um, it was in the, uh, evangelical theological society, uh, journal. I'll have um, to look Is, can, do I have access to that or do I need to pay for, uh, access? No, no it's free. Because okay, um, I, I, I might put that in the show notes. I'll, I'll send it to you uh, when Thank it's you. done. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's really good. It's it's technical. Sure. Uh, it's uh, everything he does yeah, is technical. Yeah, um, but but yeah, he, it's it's very good. And when you come out of it, you're like, oh, oh yeah, duh. So right. And if I if I can give a synopsis of that. It's basically understanding the prophet's view and, uh, you know, worldview of things wouldn't always line up with how a modernist would view eternity. Yeah, correct. 
but to them, a baby, uh, a person living to a hundred and being a cursed a sinner is basically eternal life to us. You know, it's yeah very relative. Um, I, I can't go into all of it, but it, it, it properly defines prophecy because I think a lot of people misunderstand prophecy, Nick, as yeah. merely looking into a crystal ball. Yeah. Yeah. No, and that's not the way it works ever. Yeah. It's no, I agree. The, the and, covenant enforcing prophet really rags on Israel more than he tells the future. <laughs> that's true. Yeah. I think there's, I mean, if you want to like narrow it down to, you know, numbers, you know, it's, Definitely less than half uh, mm-hmm. of what he he's saying for sure. Um, Ezekiel a little bit more uh, than Isaiah. Um, Ezekiel's probably the most for sure, followed by Daniel than right. Isaiah. Um, but yeah, you know, and you know, I when I got saved, I was a charismatic, so trust me on like I understand you know the whole like confusion of prophecy. That, yeah, that uh, I. I I had to learn the whole idea of I can prophesy to you, Nick. I can edify you and upbuild you, build you up, and and speak the scriptures to you. And that's not telling your future. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, it's prophecy is definitely a bit more complex. Um, mm-hmm. Probably a little bit outside of the purview of this, but. Uh, but yeah, I think when we do understand prophecy and prophetic literature, I think it does help us um, with more specifically apocalyptic literature right. um, and how to understand that, which um, Dr. Beale's uh, dissertation was actually uh, the Apostle John's use of Daniel in the book of Revelation. Yes, and it's mind-blowing. Yeah. And I don't I don't believe there's a gap in the 70th week. And uh, yeah, so I there's a lot there that I just really had to re I don't like the word recondition, but just learn proper hermeneutics. And I don't and I'm really not trying to call people who disagree with me stupid or something. That's not what I mean. But like when you learn, like you said, what is apocalyptic literature? Once we describe and define the categories of. The books and the literature, I would argue we take the Bible more literally. Yeah. Yeah, no, I certainly agree. And especially when you understand what the word literally means, it means it's coming from a literary device. Right. Uh, You are interpreting psalms as psalms. You're interpreting uh, narrative as narrative. You're interpreting apocalyptic literature as apocalyptic literature, which in essence, um, you know, you see it. It was actually a very short period of time. You probably what two, three hundred BC to about three hundred AD. Um, you know, about a six, seven hundred year swing. That's really about the only time you see it. Um, it doesn't mean it, it didn't exist. You know, outside, but sure. like it was very popular um, in that condensed period. Um, and when you read it, it's very circular. Yes, uh, which goes into another reason why I would argue that the book of Revelation is uh, recapitulatory. Um, yes. I like ha- uh, uh, the phrase that William Hendrickson used. Uh, he says it's um, a progressive parallelism. Yeah. And that's uh, that's one other thing that also 
converted me, if you will, to more of a middle of the road, um, amillennial preterist view, because when I looked at apocalyptic literature like Enoch and, and things, and, and, and I was reading how the post mill guys interpret this stuff in revelation, they basically make it a one for one narrative of history. And it's not, it's not, it can't be. Yep. And it's like they confuse the vision and the symbol with the thing signified. Yep, exactly. And that, that's kind of what I was going with, with the uh, eschatological event and the historical event. If we see them as, yeah. um, as different things, uh, one can and does, you know, bleed into the other, yes. Uh, but when you see something in a vision that doesn't mean that that is actually occurring. He is actually seeing it. Right. Yeah. But that doesn't mean, that doesn't mean he's looking out into the field and he actually, like he sees a physical temple there. No, but he still sees it. Right. He didn't, he didn't pop a DVD in of the future and watch and write. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And, um, you know, so, but then, then there's, you know, timing marks as well um so you see the end of revelation chapter 9 and then the beginning of uh excuse me revelation 19 excuse me um and then the beginning of revelation 20 is same battle and then i saw yeah and it's like it's like oh okay well then this is the next thing in the chronological sequence no no not always yeah no it's not um now could it be sure it could be Uh, i'll grant that Right. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's the next chronological thing in order. What it does mean is the next thing he saw chronologically was this. But that doesn't necessarily mean that the timeline within the vision was chronological. It's he, he could have easily saw this, and then he saw this. Right. Revelation is describing victory and judgment from a lot of different perspectives. Yeah. And if I'm recalling correctly, I think the world ends once or twice, even before Revelation 19 or 20. Yeah. You get uh, Revelation um, 11, Revelation 16, 19, 20. So, yeah. Have you ever seen that movie Vantage Point? I have not. Okay. Um, It was... uh, Forrest Whitaker, a couple other people, I can't remember uh, all the actors, but a good chunk of the movie is the same scene over and over and over and over again. That's awesome. You see this character's perspective, and then this character's perspective, and then that character's perspective, and you're seeing the whole reality uh, of what was an assassination attempt. Uh, but you're seeing it from the like the terrorist perspective, mm-hmm. from the bodyguards perspective, from just a bi- innocent bystanders perspective, from a delivery, um, the delivery boy who delivered the bomb but didn't know it was a bomb. Like you're seeing it from all. Sounds of these like things. every Christian needs to watch that movie to understand how the gospels work and yeah, and absolutely. Revelation. <laughs> yeah, her- hermeneutics by Hollywood, right? Yeah. Well, that <laughs> that um. I think that satisfies my discussion on Revelation. I think you and I are tracking on the same point. We listen to the same people and wanted to highlight 
what moved us out of the preterist viewpoint, because really there's not a nickel's worth of difference in the way the pre-millennial and post-mill guys interpret it just where they put it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think this is the same thing is true for, um, for Matthew 24. Uh, they, they see it as the same thing. It's just um, the uh, preterist post-mill guys see it as the destruction of the temple in 70 AD Mm-hmm. And then the futurist pre-mill guys will see it with the destruction of the future temple that is still yet to be built. Right. Yeah. I, I keep hearing, oh, they're going to build it. And I went, okay, well, that doesn't matter. Uh, <laughs> yeah. It, I have no problem if they, like, yeah. I, I have no problem in my eschatology if they build it. It's, Same. it's blasphemous. Yeah, but... it's not. So what I, well, we're going to get to this in the next passage, but what I always hit them with is, okay, you're saying that this matches the man of lawlessness passage uh, in Second Thessalonians and that Paul's calling that the temple of God. No way is he calling that the temple of God. So yeah. um, mo- moving on to the, some, some obscure passages here, um, let me read Second Peter 3.10, and let's try to work through this one. And the day yeah. of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Uh, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth, and a new earth which righteousness dwells. Now, Nick, I remember reading Gary DeMar's articles and stuff on this passage. And Gary DeMar's a very, very technical, technical thinking post-mill partial preterist. Yeah. And I actually, I really like a lot of his work. His personality is very, yeah. I kind of like his personality too, by the way, he's blunt. But anyway, <laughs> I remember being utterly shocked that this could be viewed even by my people <laughs> in the lens of 70 AD. And apparently John Owen saw it that way, and I guess I have to just say, well, okay. But it felt so odd to read about a new heavens and new earth, but somehow have to associate that with, well, that's just Old Covenant Israel and its demise in 70 AD. And I I could never convince myself of putting this passage in the past. And at this time in my life, I decided I would just be inconsistent in my preterism and try to see each passage in context and maybe not force it into an 80-70 paradigm. But once yeah. again, I got to call myself out and say I think I was reacting to dispensationalism. So, Nick, I'm sold on the idea that Peter is describing the consummation of all things and not 70 AD. And it also sticks out to me that he compares the physical destruction of the world by the flood with what's coming to the present heavens and earth. Yep. And it, it feels wrong to see real physical devastation in the time of Noah— and compare that to Old Testament Israel dissolving. Yeah. That just seems anticlimactic. And um, and Peter says we must be patient and understand that with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years. That's quite an interesting phrase, considering how we view Revelation 20. Yeah. Um, and it seems like an odd thing to say that something was only a few years away that's a thousand years away. I think that's that kind of makes some odd uh, mental gymnastics. So... Yeah. Did you ever preterize this passage? Did you have to walk out of it, or did this kind of move you along to where you're at now? Um, this was another one of those passages that kind of moved me along. Um, 
I never really tried to reconcile this with my preterism at the time. Okay. Um, I was just like, oh, well, that's weird. And then just move <laughs> forward. Well, let's forget about it for now. <laughs> yeah. I mean, in all honesty, like, um, you know, the, I think the toughest thing for me, um, well, let, let's look at it here. So, uh, first of all, um, Peter's defending the Perugia of Christ against false teachers and mockers. Okay. But, yes. You know, when we look back at uh, chapter two, you know, but false prophets arose among them, uh, uh, among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, uh, secretly bringing in destructive heresies and so on and so forth. You know, but, you know, you know, and then Peter's saying, you know, like you need to stand up, gird your loins, you know, be strong, um, stand upon the foundation of faith and, you know, move forward and combat these guys. Okay. Right. So then verse one, so this is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved, and both of them, I am stirring up a sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord uh, and savor through your apostles. Now, just a real fun side note. Um, this is actually a really interesting verse because it looks like Peter recognizes that he is writing scripture. Yes. Stephen uh, Boyce mentions this in some of his uh, material. Well, praise the Lord, I am not as crazy as I thought. Nope. Uh, James White so, does too, by the way. Uh, I believe I've heard him uh, say that. Um, I got this uh, a little more specifically from Michael Kruger. Uh, oh, cool. But a lot of these guys, like they, they kind of hang out and listen to the same stuff and hang out in the same camps. But yeah, uh, for sure. Um, knowing that, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, uh, following their sinful desires. Okay, so right there. Uh, and then, you know, verse four, they will come. Uh, where is this promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, uh, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. So, you know, where... Is he coming back? Where is he? Oh, you know, we, we hear this now. Like, we read it every day on Facebook from from the militant atheists. Yeah, yeah absolutely. You know, well, if he was coming, well, where is he? Okay, well, he said he was coming, and ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were since the beginning of creation. Everything's continuing just as it was. If if it was a atheist worldview, why would we have? continuation why would we have continuity uh why would we have universality in nature why would we have um you know uh cosmological constants like that doesn't make sense uh in a non i'll even push it more specifically a non-christian worldview mm -hmm. um, so um then moving forward for they deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. Um, so again, he's talking about, um, he's talking about uh, the coming of Christ though. In the last days you'll hear scoffing and, you know, our preterist friends will say, well, the last days of the old covenant. Well, yeah, let, let's, if we keep reading, um, we'll, we'll find that this just doesn't fit and that by the means of the world uh that uh 
that then existed was deluged with water and perished by the same word the heavens and earth now exist are stored up uh, for fire being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Okay, stopping right there. You know, okay. Um, I, I don't see where the earth has been consumed with fire. Now, with that said, could that be a, could that mean purification and not an actual fire? They they play word games to me with the whole they, new heavens, new earth is the new covenant thing, and I don't. Yes, I think that's. I think they're harmonious, but I don't think they're synonymous. I I agree. Um, just like we are new creation, but not yet. Not yet. Right. Exactly. So we're, we're heading that's there. Where that that's where that already not yet paradigm that we should be thinking. It's uh, as good as done. Energy. Yeah. Yes. Those whom exactly. he called, he justified and glorified. Yeah. Yep, exactly. And then we continue, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with uh, the day uh, with the Lord, one day is a thousand years uh, and a thousand years is one day. Pausing there again real quick. This is the only other time the reference of a thousand is ever used in the New Testament besides the, the 1,000 years in Revelation. This is the only other time. And it's used figuratively. Eschatologically. <laughs> Yeah, it's used figuratively. <laughs> I, I I'm with you. Um, you biblicist. Oh <laughs> goodness. Uh, I don't think Aquinas yeah. would agree with that. Uh, <laughs> there's a lot of things with Aquinas that I wouldn't agree with, but we won't go down that route at the moment. <laughs> well, it's our current controversy in Baptist circles, so you know, w- wait till next week. Cool. <laughs> There'll be something else. You know. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise. Promise of what? Right. Returning. As some count slowness, but is patient toward you. For what? Not wishing that any should perish. Uh, now this gets into the Calvinist. Sure. Discussion. You know, any of. But it's, it's quite a universal statement beyond the scope of Jerusalem. Yes. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Uh, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief, like a thief. Where have we heard that before? Thessalonians and Jesus. Thessalonians and First uh, Corinthians 15. I believe it's there, but I could be wrong. But uh, but Thessalonians for sure, mm-hmm. which is specifically talking about the day of the Lord that is still yet to come. But we continue even further. Uh, and the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and works that are done on it will be exposed. That specifically is Matthew 25. Yes. That is specifically Matthew 25. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of uh, people ought you to be uh, be in uh, lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming day of God, uh, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt and burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. There it is again. It's not just new heavens and new earth, but where righteousness dwells. Yeah, righteousness doesn't dwell in Jerusalem right now. No, it doesn't. That was a political event, not an esca- Yeah, that's that's a good distinction. Yeah. And then... Again, it's funny that if you just keep reading, it, it tends to get away from a lot of these, you know, 
system. erroneous uh, systems. Therefore, since you are waiting for these things, be diligent to be found in him without spot or blemish and at peace uh, and count patient toward the Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him, as he does in all of his letters when he speaks uh, in them these matters. The, uh, here is where he calls Paul's writings scripture. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and, you know, so it, it, it's, it's funny that, you know, when we keep reading the new heavens and the new earth is not discussing some sort of um, new reality after AD 70. It's, it can only mean um, a future consummation because it's talking about a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Right. There's no casual walk out of the, the smoke after that. Yeah, it's, exactly. This is a whole new way of life. Yeah, exactly. So, and, and you know, it, it's talking about a consummation, a consummation which brings, you know, the the end of the now world described by the promise of his perusia, again, verse 4, 9, and 13. Um, you know, the day of the Lord, the day of God, the day of judgment, all these are um, synonymous in this regard. Well, Nick, thank you for that very exegetical explanation of that. I think you just gave me some new um, things to think on and uh, perhaps talking points because I did not realize how much that paralleled Matthew 24 and 25. Yeah. Um, so I, I like your um, stressing of let's not just read it here and see what it means here. Does this remind us of anything else that's been said before or after? And it's one unit. The Bible is a unit. It's the word of God, the whole counsel of God as James White yeah. <laughs> would say. Yeah. Um, so, all right, so for your next trick, <laughs> and I, I think I know where you're going to go because I know where I'm at on this presently, but I, I think it trips a lot of people up in all camps because it's difficult. Uh, that's the man of lawlessness. In Second Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul says that the coming of Christ will not happen until the rebellion, and that word means rebellion, not rapture, and yeah. the man of lawlessness is revealed. He goes on to describe what sounds like an antichrist figure who exalts himself and takes a seat in the temple of God. In fact, it sounds like he's on Daniel chapter 11. Um, is this past? Is this future? How literal is it? And I know you love that word. Temple? Uh, so many questions. And I'll give myself away here and say I, I hold the, the G.K. Beale view of what does the temple mean in Paul usually. So what are your thoughts on the man of lawlessness? Um, yeah, that, that's very often where I go as well. Uh, what, what does the temple mean, Paul? Uh, it doesn't necessarily mean uh, a physical temple found in uh, the physical earthly city of Jerusalem um, in the Israeli-Palestinian landmass. Right. Um, I, think, I think, again, if we... I, this is going to sound pejorative, and I don't mean it this way. Um, if we stop being naturalistic materialists, if we stop oh, you're right. isolating upon the physical um, and recognize the, um, the symbiotic uh, relationship between both the physical and the spiritual, that they both are real mm-hmm. um, and they both are literal. Uh, that I think that at least expands our mind. That that doesn't necessarily mean that this 
isn't talking about a physical temple in the physical landmass of Jerusalem, Israel. It doesn't necessarily mean that. It just means it's not automatically that. So then we have to kind of do the hard work and what does the temple mean in Paul then? Mm-hmm. So then, then we have to, and I would argue that um, in part that it is talking about, um, it is talking about the church um, in a sense. Um, I think there is, it doesn't necessarily mean the universal church or the universal body of believers. Okay. Um, uh, I would say at least in part, it would be discussing um, what we see physically with the church. And a lot of times we see, you know, a great falling away, um, you know, a, a pruning, if you will. And, you know, it, it's a, it's a very sad text. It, it truly is. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, you know, we can even see part of that in, you know, the days we're living in right now. Um, Lifeway did a massive study. Um, and I think it concluded the end of last summer or something like that. Um, that almost 40% of um, American churches uh, or American believers that were going to church before the um, pandemic stuff started still had not gone back yet a year and a half later. Yeah, that's true. It's, it's a, um, it's a tragedy, but we, we understand that the gospel weeds out the non, the, those who might've, once broke bread with us, will go out from us and show that they never were of us, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, and I'm not saying anyone that's haven't gone back to church is automatically damned. I mean, no, but I think no. a lot of people have moved away from it and um, yeah. found their their God in social media and things like that. And, yeah. you know, and I got wrapped up into and, it. Yeah, their church and social media, too. Sure, you know, 100%. You know. Not So I have a, a very annoying relating to all that because i wasn't going to church not because of pandemic because i had stage four cancer yeah Uh, and i was in the hospital 14 literally and i do mean literally 14 times last year yeah so there there was a lot going on for me but i'm back in church now and i'm really happy about it but i've seen plenty of normally healthy people just go i'm done yeah and you know even throughout church history you know we see you know, there's a dichotomy, um, or not a dichotomy, excuse me, a, a distinction uh, between those who are considered what's called shut-ins, mm-hmm. um, those who are physically not able to make it, um, but the, you know, the pastors and elders um, actually brought the um, the Lord's Supper elements to the house of the people so that they can administer to it there, you know, and that'd be, that'd be awesome if we... I really... I really wish that would have happened for me. Yeah. You know, and that, that would be a beautiful thing. Um, you know, but, um, you know, getting back to, you know, specifically the man of lawlessness, the, the question that generally comes up, uh, especially if somebody is an amillennialist uh-huh. is, do you think that there is a final, um, or, well, the first one is, was there a singular man of lawlessness? Right. Was was this something in Paul's day? Yes. Or uh, or, do, or do we look at Daniel and, and see the warm-up of, of, of Antiochus 
and somewhat read that into our future. Yeah. Um, no, we don't do that with Daniel. Um, hermeneutically speaking, if we did that, we would, we would have what's called an old Testament priority. And, right. um, and Christians do not have an old Testament priority. I know uh, I'm going to get myself in trouble. Functionally here. they do sometimes. Yes. We'll leave it at that. I was gonna, and, 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 I was let's call gonna, it. Well, let, we'll be charitable. It's a blessed inconsistency. Oh, absolutely. They're, they're, they're believers. They're doing wonderful works, but there are things that I think that they're overemphasizing old versus new. When I think the apostles unapologetically said, Hey, here's what this really meant. Our minds had to be enlightened to it. And I don't think that passage is looked at enough about Jesus on, on showing the disciples what really the Bible said about him. Yeah. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, we, you know, we have something called equip groups at our church and it's every other week. And we've been doing a very basic, very basic uh, biblical theology. So how do we trace a theme? Well, when you trace a theme, you need to see where it starts, but then you need to see where it culminates. Where where does it end? Um, Now, we could just say, you know, the simple Sunday school answer. Well, it's Jesus. Ultimately, is that right? Yeah, that actually is right. Right. Um, However, I don't think we should come to an answer simplistically um we need to come to it scripturally and show your work right yep that's exactly right so you know uh all of the promises of god are found find their yes in jesus paul to the love that one love that um paul also to the corinthians said that even the jews to this day when they read the law of moses still have a veil over their faith so we shouldn't be in a whole lot of harmonious agreement with rabbinical Judaism. Correct. I uh, agree. And frankly, uh, there's a lot of people that say we need to read the Old Testament the way the Old Testament authors understood it. And my thought is, if you do that, then you're doing the exact thing that Jesus rebuked. You're right. Uh, I have... I let me confess, man, I, I love and have defended Michael Heiser for years. Okay. And yeah, I, I, think, I saw that post too. Yeah. And I, and I think in many areas he's, he's been a gift to the church. I, I think he's a good man. He's, he's got a serious cancer right now. My heart is very broken yeah. for him, Yeah, but he's kind of been making a habit of making really polemical statements with no context, with no explanation. And so I think it's one thing to say, recognize how this would have been understood by the ancient Israelites. I don't think that's automatically unhelpful. I think it's helpful. Yeah, I think but it is helpful. did Jesus or Paul or, or John or the gospel authors, did they show us what this really meant? And I think the answer is yes to a lot of it, if not all of it. Yes. And um, now I'm not saying the whole trial by ordeal has been interpreted for us in the New Testament, right? You know, I'm talking about the whole adultery trial thing okay i don't know if there's a crossing point in the new testament where i get to say that to jesus but yeah but the sacrificial system the eschatology of israel the covenant what it was leading to that's all been properly explained yes yeah 100 percent. so uh so having you know that was brought up you know because there's a lot of times that people have a uh, old testament priority when it comes to hermeneutics uh, which is, you know, why you see a lot of people, 
you know, going back to the book of Revelation for a second, like, oh, well, when we read the book of Revelation, we should read Daniel so that we can understand Revelation better. Mm-hmm. And nope, the, the opposite is true. We read Revelation so that we can Daniel better. Daniel better. Now, yeah. now, a lot of people are like, but the book of Revelation is kind of confusing. Yeah, a little yeah. bit. But, but we read Revelation in light of all of the New Testament. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the then, unclear with the clear. Exactly. Is that the analogy of faith? Um, the Bible and scripture interpret scripture. That's part of it. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I, I've not, never understood the wording, how that made sense to what I'm thinking it means. Yeah. So regular fide uh, or the rule of faith or the analogy uh-huh. of faith um, is simply that scripture interprets scripture. Part of that is that the clear scripture interprets the unclear scripture. So that would be part of it. But then okay. there's a wider application of seeing all of scripture as a unit. Um, but then when you're looking at particulars, you start with um, the most concentrated uh, on that text. Uh, you, and then you look at how does the author use that in this particular passage? And then wider, how does this author use it in all of his works? So taking John, for example, how does John utilize uh, the phrase uh, the world? Right. You know? Yeah, it's uh, it's cosmos and John is many times not universal, every person that lived. Correct. Yeah. Um, and I used and to argue it, that as a preterist, by the way. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, even, you know, John even uses it and what is it? Uh, John 17, uh, he says, they are in the world, but not of the world. Mm -hmm. It's the same word, cosmos. So in what way are you, are you utilizing it here? I think it was, I think it was D.A. Carson, but I can't remember. Um, concluded that John uses the term world about 14 different ways. Wow. So, so. You know, so we have to understand. That's a lot of work to do, to look at, yeah. It is a lot of work. So for for, for people who are listening here, and I'm not trying to get, get hit you with a gotcha, Nick. Sure. What about, what about the guy on the tractor who's never going to learn, never going to go to biblical hermeneutic school, and he's going to be a farmer and take care of his family all of his life, but he wants to understand scripture. Are we, are we in this ivory tower do you think the guy on the tractor can understand basic the Bible as a unit and interprets itself? I think so, but I'm not sure I could properly defend that in the context that's usually thrown at me. Sure. Um, yeah, I, I think one of the easiest ways is um, how many authors are there of Scripture? All together? Yeah. No. All right. Now let's uh, – let me – you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to poke at you. Uh, go go for quick. it. Um, um, why is it that you only thought of human authors? Why is that I only thought of human authors? Because I'm a human, and I think everything's rationally materialistic to me. You see what I mean? Yeah. So the 100%. first thing we need to do is we need to remember that God is the ultimate author of Scripture. Yeah. Men are carried along by the Holy, by the Holy Spirit. Spirit. Uh, we, we were just discussing Second Peter. We were looking at uh, chapter 3. I briefly mentioned uh, chapter 2. But chapter one, men carried along by the Holy Spirit, all scripture um, breathed out by Anastas as Paul. But yeah. um, 
there is no prophecy of scripture that starts with man or the will of man, but starts with God, Second Peter uh, chapter 1. So if we remember that ultimately there is one author of scripture, well then, okay, then we're going to see it as one unit. Sure. Okay, that's easy. Um, so then how do we know that the Old Testament um, is to point to and is fulfilled in Christ? Okay, Luke chapter 24, um, on the road to Emmaus. Um, uh, where are we? Uh, verse 26, um, uh, was it not necessary that the Christ, and this is Jesus talking, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into glory? And beginning with Moses and the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Um, now, notice it says, in beginning with Moses and in all the prophets. Uh, but notice how it's worded as well, uh, uh, real quick. It's he interpreted to them in all the scriptures, not he interpreted all the scriptures that are concerning him. He interpreted in all the scriptures the things that are concerning him. Right. And then we read a little bit further down, same chapter, uh, verse 44. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Okay. And then I'll read the next verse in just a second, but notice what he just did. What are the three things there? The law, the prophets, and the Psalms or the writings. Mm-hmm. The whole tonight. That's the whole Old Testament. Yeah. yeah. The whole Old Testament. And then, and then finally... Um, um, is this something that is going to have to be forced into our brain and we need to really dig and learn? No. Verse 45, then he opened their minds to understand the scripture. Yeah. I think church orthodoxy over the last 2000 years, not that there hasn't been plenty of disagreements and things, but I think when you look at how the church has been unified on some real clear essentials. I think that testifies to the word of God being it doesn't change. Yeah. It does not change. Yeah. Um, and there have been intellectual men who've butchered it, and there have been very simplistic men who've properly interpreted it, you know? Yeah. Uh, so, but I, I really I thank you for breaking that down. And uh, yeah. I'm starting to feel that the whole, well, what do the Old Testament believe? Uh, what, are the, what do the ancient Israelites think? Well, I don't think that's necessarily unhelpful. It can't be our hermeneutic. It can't be our no. starting hermeneutic. No, it can't be. No, it, it's it may be helpful to know what they believed, right? But to agree with what they believed is something different. Exactly, and I and I think I've been convicted personally, just going, well, man, am I agreeing with the apostles before they were corrected by Christ over and over? And yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? You know? Yep. You and, know, because or, like in in Acts one, they're like, "Is this the time you're gonna restore the king?" <laughs> and he's like, "Well, hold on a minute." <laughs> yeah, and, and but what is what does Jesus do? Um, so, you know, because a lot of premills uh, will say, "Well, he doesn't." He you know, doesn't Jesus say no. Doesn't, he doesn't say no. Actually, he does. He does. Um, because he says, "Is this the time you restore the kingdom to Israel?" Okay, Jesus says. It's not for you to know well, any times. Okay, so he answers, is this the time? No. No. Restore the kingdom to Israel. 
then what does Jesus say? But you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So the kingdom is not coming to Israel. It's going and he, to also, and he, he links that to the Holy Spirit baptizing the church. Exactly. And yeah. then you see the unfolding of the Spirit uh, in Acts chapter 2, um, chapter 8, chapter 10, and chapter 19. Uh, who are the ones that uh, receive the Spirit in chapter 2? Jews. Who was it that received the Holy Spirit in chapter 8? Samaritans. Yep. Who was it in chapter 10? God-fearer Gentiles. Who was it in 19? Gentiles. It's a beautiful chronology. There, there, there's a real chronology right there. Yep. Um, and I, I actually think there's a lot of interesting discussion, and we don't have time today. We're, we're almost finished here. But with the Jewish people still kind of felt like they were in exile. Yeah. But— Acts kind of not, not kind of uh, forgive my my the way I talk sometimes. Yeah, Acts yeah. says the that they were gathered from all na- Jews from all nations had gathered into one, and it's like, well, is that is are, are they is the author shooting at the regathering of the people of God? And I think the answer is yes, but the people of God now encompass every tribe, tongue, and nation. Yeah, yeah, and I think there's I think I think that it's a dual reality um, mm-hmm. in essence. Because it is a, a regathering of the people of God, but then what happens right after? There is a dispersing. They go the back to their places. Exactly. Um, so, are believers in exile? And I, I think there's a biblical theology theme uh, with that. One hundred. You know, um, sojourners. Yeah, we are sojourners and saints to the exiles. Uh, you know mentioned uh this is the second letter now i've written to you in uh second peter uh three well how does the first one start off to the elect exiles you know right um now now i've got friends um um i don't know how good friends you are with chris date chris dates one of my really yeah, close friends i've known chris for a while me and him are both amillennial he's more preterist than me at this point yeah. But we really disagree on Israel because he actually thinks that the church in Israel, there is a bit of a separation. He doesn't yeah. go full dispensational with it, but he sure. does have an, a nuanced view. Sure. And so me and him have kind of went round and round on, uh, is it First Peter or Second Peter that's written to the disper- this diaspora? That's the First Peter. The first. Okay, well, so Chris I mean, thinks— you could, say, you could say both because uh, chapter 1, uh, First Peter 1.1 1, 1 says— to the elect exiles of the dispersion of these areas. Okay. And then second Peter chapter three, verse one says, this is my second letter now that I'm written to you. Okay. Well, my, my, my contention here is I have been reading that for years now, since I became to a more reformed hermeneutic as written to me, like written to, I, I'm an elect, I'm an elect, uh, a part of the body of God. Right. Um, but but Chris reads that as a very Jewish sect, and it really doesn't have anything to do with Gentiles. Yeah, and I, I've run across a few people, even recently, with that, and uh, you know I, I find it very difficult, especially when you look at Second um, you know, Peter chapter one, which discusses the nature of Scripture. Yeah. Um, um, also, chapter three discusses the nature of Scripture uh, because it talks about uh, both the. Uh, uh, Old Testament prophets and the New Testament apostles uh, by command of Christ uh, talks about Paul's writings. Uh, First Peter uh, chapter two discusses the nature of the atonement. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, but in his body, he bore our sin and death. Yeah. Uh, so, and you even get some really conf- uh, traditionally confusing language of where was Jesus in between then and now? Uh, you know about the descending into hell language, and obviously that's Hades. Yeah. But you you yeah. get some really theologically stunning passages, and to say that that was only written to a specific people feels weird to me. And uh, one other thing, there's also commandments in First Peter about obey the emperor, do good, don't quarrel about things. And it's like, we really need to hear that today, Nick. Uh, <laughs> am, am I wrong? Am I stepping on toes? No, we, we need to, you know, take over and, you know, we need to, uh, uh, we need to defy tyrants and right. obey De- God. Ty- defining tyranny is, yeah, when tyranny becomes power, we become, t- yeah, I, those shirts are dumb. Uh, uh, sorry, I, I have no love for the extreme restoration, uh, extreme theonomic movement. Yeah, uh, I, you know, the I, t-shirts do make really good, like, washcloths. Oh, sure. <laughs> I had to delete a guy on Facebook today because he was uh, – I was making a very uh, – draw my line in the sand of, hey, this is where I'm at on abortion. I'm pro-life, and he was all in agreement with me. But then he started saying, uh, you know, these guys are going to burn. I'm not going to testify to them. And I said, whoa, 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 that's not our call. Nope. Uh, um, they, they will burn if they don't repent. You're right. But yeah. we, don't, we don't wash our hands of them. No. No. But – Aren't we supposed to, you know, you know, not cast our pearls before swine? That's what he said. That Nick, that's exactly what he quoted. And yeah, I didn't just, feel like getting into a long debate, but just so we understand where I'm at on pearls before swine, that is something that every personal believer has to evaluate in each context of a conversation. Okay. Yeah. When I'm talking to my doctors or whoever in my life is not believers, and they're not like, kicking me out of the room and they're wanting to hear about my faith. Well, then I keep telling them, Nick. Yeah, of course. But when they, when they get aggressive or, or, or perhaps even, and my doctors wouldn't do this, of course, but I'm just talking about in general, if they get violent and start, you know, throwing things at you the way Jeff Durbin gets on that Jeff Durbin has people do that to him all the time. Well then, then we have to evaluate when do we shut up and, and dust our feet? Yeah. Yeah. And, and I find, you know, especially, you know, this, you know, upcoming younger generation. And I, I pray, I really truly pray to the Lord that this is simply just youthful arrogance. Just um, a fad. Yeah. Um, that, you know, as Paul said in first Corinthians 13, speaking about love, he said, um, you know, when I was a child, I acted like a child, but when I became a man, I put off childish ways. Right. And, um, you know, we are, we are men of the gospel and, you know, I find very sad that, again, a lot of people, um, and it's not, I don't think it's isolated to one camp either. No, it's not. The, the, we um, Look, I've got all male people that are a little aggressive for my taste. Yeah, same. Sure. That's why I'm a moderator in a group, because i got to boot some people sometimes. Right. Know? But, but um, you know, I find it sad, you know, that they're so quick to say, you know, oh, this is pearls before swine. It's like you didn't even evangelize once, right? That you're it. It's Nick. It's laziness. I'm sorry. It, no, it, it, if my goodness, it's worse than that. It's it's pride. It's yeah. arrogance. Um, you know, and we, we are supposed to be humbled by our election. Yeah. Yes, 
you know, and the Lord will not stand for that on the day of judgment, you know, like, sure, you're going to get in, but as if one who escaped a fire. Right. Right. So, yeah. I mean, that, that makes that's harsh. powerful. But, and, I, and I know I have to personally answer to God for times I've thought like that, but oh, same. I, I think we need to encourage our brothers and sisters to mature in the faith, to not be doormats, okay? I'm not a pastor. Yeah, no, 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 no. I, and I, oh, I feel I'm like we're, we're gen- I feel like the extremes always malign us to to one side or the other. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa hold on. I own a handgun. I'm going to defend my wife. I'm going to do the things that the Lord has called me to do, but I'm not going to go storm Washington about it. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, I mean, a- as you saw just before the recording started, you know, my shotgun's literally sitting about like six <laughs> You know, yeah, I have a you, shotgun and you, two rifles. Theonomist. Yeah. <laughs> you know. So, uh, closing out the man of lawlessness. What yeah, do you think about the, the papacy thing? Because I actually have a soft spot for that view. <laughs> so, okay, so I had mentioned, uh, you know, that I when I got saved, I was a charismatic, but I was actually raised Roman Catholic. Yes, sir. Um. So, while a part of me wants to just angrily recoil and be like yeah he's the antichrist yeah not so much i don't see the definite article for antichrist no there's, there's not there's not you're right and antichrist spirit first of all it's a concept not a man so do i think the idea and the office of the papacy is antichrist 100 percent. yes oh yeah same absolutely um so with that said is the Pope the man of lawlessness or uh, using um, the preterist? So the historicist normally says that the Pope is the Antichrist. That's generally their argument. Again, generality is not, you know, not always the right. case. Um, the we're, we're, preterist, we're painting broad brushes here. We're not trying to shoot at individual people. Exactly. Yeah. Preterists a lot of times say that uh, this is Nero. Yes, I believed that. I used to used to make the claim that six 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 is Nero is, is Gematria for Nero, and then I even asked Stephen Boyce about the manuscript. Uh, what was it in? One. Yeah, six one six. I don't remember the tradition that came the manuscript tradition, but either way, you can both make that Nero Nero Caesar, and I always found that powerful, but. I don't find it as powerful as I used to be with all the other evidence. How do you feel about that? So do I think Nero was an antichrist? Yes. Yes, sir. Do I think that he was a man of lawlessness? Yes. Now, I think that might answer your question a little bit more. Uh, but I want to go to the text. Uh, okay. So it's Second Thessalonians chapter 2. Um, I want to uh, kind of isolate here on verses 6 through 8. Because uh, I think that really answers um, uh, our, our questions here. Thank you. It says, and you. And you know what is restraining him now. Uh, so remember that. Uh, mm-hmm. So that he may be revealed in his time. Uh, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is uh, out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. Sounds like Satan himself, if you ask me. You know, it it really does. 
Um, Riddlebarger kind of takes that view. I don't know if you've yeah. ever heard his lecture on it. Yeah, he's got a book uh, called The Man of Lawlessness. Uh-huh. Uh huh. And that's that's pretty much where he goes. Uh, now, I would agree with him uh, also that this is again almost a recapitulatory figure. Yeah. Um, uh, because uh, let I said remember this. Look at verse six real quick. Um, and you know what is restraining him now. So he is now restrained. Mm-hmm. Right. And then it says, and then the lost one will be revealed. 100%. So see a now. It, not yet. And it, not it, yet. Reality with a man of lawlessness himself. Um, so it seems that this is either we could say like some sort of like eternal being. Uh, so it could directly be Satan. Um, or um, it doesn't necessarily have to be mutually exclusive either. Mm-hmm. Uh, that it's a recapitulatory figure that one was restrained and then there's going to be another one that is revealed and then another one and then another one until there is a capstone noting verse eight. Um, and then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will kill with the breath of his mouth uh, and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. Um, the reason so. that I am sympathetic to the Riddlebarger view, if we'll, we'll just call it that for this episode, that this could just simply be Satan himself is the language of being bound, being restrained, the language of being unrestrained, yep. and the rebellion could go hand in hand with Revelation 19 and 20. Yep, that's exactly right. Um, you know, and we also see, you know, Jesus himself says, you know, uh, how can I plunder a, or how can a, someone plunder a house unless the strong man is first bound? 100%. Um, I've always it, connected that. Yep. So, so that's why I would say it's certain, I would say it's, uh, it's a both and that it's, uh, both Satan and historical figures throughout time. Right. Who, who were emboldened, empowered by Satan himself. And they, they were doing... They were doing the will of Satan, you know, thwarting the church. Yep, exactly. Uh, And whether that's an end-time event, whether that this one-world order thing comes together, which I don't really see. um, Yeah, I struggle with that. Right, I struggle with it, but I also don't. Man, I see evidence to to see it real, too. And I I just kind of leave it to the providence of God, and I'll be humbled. But the thing is, let's let's just say— Let's just say the dispensational system of the one world order led by a leader that may could be very well right, but it's going to be Satan himself brought to his knees at the end of the day. Yes, and they yes. say that too, by the way. Yeah, agreed, agreed. You know, I, I don't want to disparage uh, sure. them inaccurately, uh, but but yeah. So, but with that said, I think this passage does. Um, I think it pokes holes in both the futurist and the preterist uh, interpretations because the futurist would say that this man is still yet future even now for us, mm-hmm. where, again, here it says he's now restrained. And Paul, this, Paul seems to think he's, he's present. Exactly. Uh, he's present, but restrained even 2,000 years ago when Paul was writing, he was already restrained. But then he says, then he is yet to be revealed— uh, so then that part actually pokes at the preterist understanding. Uh, you know, 
there's only one person, so I'm not going to say this is a preterist view, but there's one person that I was discussing, and they said, yeah, but that was because this letter was written before Nero came to power. Okay, so they would put that with Nero as well. Yeah. Okay, the, then, the, they, then the question is, did Nero commit suicide, or did Jesus kill him with the breath of his mouth? Yes. And so my dispy roots, Nick, tell me to read that very literally. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I mean, if we want to take it super literally, I mean, did Jesus have like an onion sandwich for lunch? <laughs> um, you know, like I like I'm not trying to be like overly oh, I hear, yeah. crude, but I mean, you got guys that talk about blood moons here, but uh, yeah. they say blood moon. But that's a that's a not figurative bloody. speech because the moon, the the moon has a shadow that's causing it to be red. The moon doesn't actually turn to blood. Like I can't fly up to the moon and grab uh, a piece of the moon and then test it and see that it's O positive blood. Like it's not literal. Right. I 100% Nick. This is why listeners, this topic, even within people who agree with each other, me and Nick are on the same page on, I think about nine tenths of what we're talking about here. There is nuance, even in us. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like how sure. we would look at that, because I'm I'm really okay with saying that's Satan and that's Revelation 19 and 20. Like it makes yeah. perfect sense to me. Yeah. But I can also see the whole. Well, maybe it's just been figures across time. Yeah. Now, with that said, I I would argue that it's both. Sure. Yes, uh, sir. It's both. Like, okay. I, I would Let say me, it's figures. Forgive me. It's both. Yeah. Yeah. I would say it's figures across time empowered by Satan, um, who is the true man of lawlessness. Okay. Okay. Then I, I think, I think we're there. Well, man, I, I love the way you exegete the stuff. I know you take God's word very seriously. You're not just coming out here with opinions and things you've read. No, you're actually showing us in the text of why you arrived at these places. And I know this has been a long episode, but I'm so thankful for your time and willingness to do this. So one final thing here, man, is the last days. And I, I would imagine we probably look at this with already, not yet, but I would imagine you have sure. some good nuance here. There are a few passages in the New Testament cited by those who adhere to the partial preterism system that suggest that the biblical authors were living in the last days. They believed they were living in the last days. It's then argued that the last days are speaking of the last days of the old covenant order. Most notably, we have 2 Timothy 3.1 and Hebrews 1.2. Now, I'll admit, I found that convincing on the surface of they, the, the, the writers of Scripture seem to think they're in the last days. It's not something that got inaugurated in 1948 that the dispensationalists try to tell us. It's not. Yeah. But I'm not comfortable with saying that the last days are over either. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, I, I agree. Um, yeah, and I mean, like, I, I think 2 Timothy 3.1 and Hebrews 1.2, you know, are, are great passages for that, um, you know, just real briefly, let's let's take a look at Hebrews one. I'll, I'll read one and two since it's um, sure. You know, Thanks. it's one sentence. Yeah, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom He has also created the world. Um. So yeah. So I I think last days here is. Um, um, 
you know, fairly clear that uh, that there is a distinction uh, between the long ago at uh, many times and in many ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, we see a um, a uh, inverse parallelism. Um, okay. So while Hebrews was written in Greek, it has a Hebrew logic right. uh, to it. Um, so long ago, in these last days, uh, many times in many ways, uh, now. And, yeah. now there's a singular thing. Uh, God has spoken to us by the fathers, uh, excuse me, to our fathers, by the prophets, by his son, to us, by his son, um, whom he has appointed the, uh, the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. Uh, and then it goes into a, and really an exegesis of the son, uh, or an exegesis of the father by way of the son, right? And then exegesis of the son. And then uh-huh. we get a new way to see the creation in the Old Testament to see that this was Christ. Yes, it's, exactly. It's, it's a wonderful argument against the Unitarians. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, so but the question here is, in these last days, is that specifically speaking? about the last days of the old covenant or is it speaking about something different at, at the very least a new phase uh, of life yeah you know, exactly something, right yeah um from this passage it doesn't seem that you can draw a conclusion one way or the other okay however with that said um it would be difficult if um it would be difficult to say that it would ha- have to be uh, the last days of the old covenant, because in essence, what you would ha- almost have to say is that the Lord is not speaking to us by his son now. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Because now it's, so that would if you, if that you would shove be, that all into the past, then you're 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 kind of shoving Christology into the past too a little bit. A little bit, yeah. Um, I, I don't want to over conclude, right? But, um, you would have to at least um, shove all of that which is inscripturated in the past. Okay. That would be very difficult for me. That's 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 hard to do because I still um, think there's stuff awaiting fulfillment. Agreed. Um, not only awaiting fulfillment, but, um, you know, First Corinthians 13 says uh, that what you uh, that we know in part and we prophesy in part. Uh, but on that day, we Till will the see perfect. the perfect comes, which I would argue is the second coming, uh, even Same. though I'm a stationist. Uh, but it is okay. a second coming. Um, but the, the I'm glad you're aware of that's a hot, a hot yeah. verse for that debate. <laughs> yeah. Different topic. Different, different can, day, maybe another time. I'd be happy to discuss that another day. Good. <laughs> Again, I've been actually former, looking for a very knowledgeable cessationist because I'd like I'm to talk about it charitably. So yeah, I, I'd like okay. to talk about it charitably with somebody who, yeah, okay, I'm sorry, man. I'll, I'll hit you up with that after the show, but yeah. Yeah, for <laughs> sure. Um, but, uh, but it's talking about the knowledge that we now possess uh, because it says that 
uh, now we see in a mirror dimly, but on that day we will see as face to face. Um, so the scriptures that we have now are a dimly lit mirror. Even though the scriptures are clear, compared to what we will see on that day, they will just be like a dimly lit uh, mirror. Uh, wow. Where, yeah. And that really, that's that hindsight 2020 of scripture because, yeah. you know, Jesus didn't break out Daniel 9 and say, see, I'm the Messiah. Here it is. No. Uh, he didn't. And, oh, he did but say, he did, oh, he did open their minds to what all the scriptures had said prior. And yep. that's all they needed. But even what we have now isn't the full revelation of what's to come. And, and I know that sounds a bit controversial, but you're right. It's, we're still awaiting the eschatological consummation. Yep. <laughs> we wouldn't be arguing about this stuff if we had already gotten there. Yeah, exactly. That is how we know in part, because we, we have, imagine like you can see somebody on the other side of a frosted glass. You can see the outline and the shape of them, but you can't see the details. That's, yeah. that's where we are right now. Wow. Um, that is, that's humbling. It really is. Thank you also, for that. That is humbling. I've read that 35,000 times, Nick, and <laughs> never really applied it to my personal walk and um, worldview with people disagreeing in their camps and stuff. That's I've never thought about that. And, and Vern Poitras uh, wrote a book called Symphonic Theology. Um, you know, you can have a, you can have um, a trumpet over here and then a French horn here and then a clarinet and a flute. Uh, and then a sousaphone, and these are all different. And if they're all if they're all playing the exact same note, it's going to sound terrible. Right. But if they're all different instruments playing a different note, conducted by a singular conductor, then it's going to sound beautiful together. Right. And as a musician, the one the one could be playing the root, one could be playing the third, the other could be playing the ninth or the fifth, and you're harmonizing guitar guitar nerdiness here, but that's a yeah. beautiful analogy to how the church sees scripture and what's going to be fulfilled late. I mean, that's that's great, man. Yeah. You are such an insightful guy. I really appreciate... The reason I wanted to have you on the show is I've been reading and watching your stuff for a couple of years now, which is hard to believe, and um, I know you don't consider yourself a celebrity by any means, but you've been influential to me, and yeah, I really wanted to talk to you about this stuff, well, because I, I know that. you're a deep thinker like me. You're nuanced. You don't you don't malign and throw things at the wall and say, well, that's just how it is. You actually see all sides of this. And uh, I think that's very evident in the way you've come to these passages and went, well, hey, there's preterist proofs here and there's also futurist proofs. We got to harmonize that. Yeah. Well, Nick, thank you so much. And yeah. um, my final thing, uh, y'all, <laughs> if I can be Texas for a moment. Yeah. The already and the not yet has been one of the most helpful things for my personal walk, for my wife's personal walk, yep. to see the Bible as relevant to the people it was written to and relevant to the people it's now uh, conducting their lives in the 21st century. And I find myself defaulting to this more and more with certain passages and concepts. feels more natural than just putting one thing in the, either the past or the future in a dogmatic way. Yeah. Um, how do you parse this, Nick? Do you have any advice for people who maybe have just kind of grown up? I, I hate to use the word biblicist, but they just kind of read it one for one with the newspaper or whatever. Like, is there a way? Is there a book on this? 
is there what's a good starting point for someone who's just trying to figure this out uh, for themselves now? Yeah, I mean, there's I mean, there's tons of good resources out there. I mean, uh, I I really like Sam Waldron's stuff. Oh yeah, um, he's got a couple books. Um, end times made simple, and then more end times made simple. Okay. Um, so I mean, there there's a those are a couple good ones, and they're pretty they're pretty easy reads. They're not they're not super hefty or anything like that. Um, there's a new book that came out last was it last year or two years ago now. Um, by Jeffrey Johnson called the five points of amillennialism. I, I like Jeffrey Johnson, despite yeah. his uh, uproar in the Baptist community right now. <laughs> um, Same. Uh, yeah, I, I, that's a, And so I always recommend kingdom come by Sam storms. Kingdom come by Sam storms is very good. I think he's uh, very insightful in some areas. I, I do just, I, you know, he does. And also, he's, he's preterist like, on Matthew yeah. 24, 100%. Yeah. Um, yeah, he is. And, you know, I disagree with him. Yeah. He's a a good brother, and I think he's done a lot of good work in this area. Absolutely. You know, despite him being a charismatic, you know, he does a lot of good work. Yeah, that's part part of the reason I want to talk to you, because I like Sam Storms, and I I read his book about the case for a prayer language and all that, and I'm not going to reveal where I'm at all that, but... uh, Have that right up there. Yeah, well... Let me just tell you, my, my family has charismatic roots, and I, I I think I disagree with them, but I think I agree with them, too. And it's I find myself torn on a lot. So I, I'd like to have a conversation yeah, with you about that, that sometime. But, yeah, uh, I'd be happy to. I think the point of my episode today was, does amillennialism require partial preterism? And Nick, what's the answer? No. No. It doesn't require a rigid partial preterism. I think it does require being open to seeing some fulfillments in the past, though. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I think you definitely need to be able to uh, have some sort of fulfillment uh, already done. Like, so as far as like, as far as if I like ranked uh, hermeneutical structures, uh, number one, modified idealist, okay. but then num- number two would be preterist. Right. Um, and then number three would be a fut- futurist. Uh, now, with that said, um, I know historicists really didn't get a whole lot of airtime uh, in this. Um, I would say I it's not popular anymore either. And we got to be really honest. Not, yeah, exactly. But I mean, as far as that goes, I'd probably like have that, like uh, it'd be modified. <laughs> Preterist, historicist, futurist, futurist yeah. would be last for me. Um, the the reformers, even in their their context and time, they weren't stupid, man. And I think they oh. I think they saw the Bible as a, a living book. Yeah. Well, I mean, I know they did. I mean, they they yeah. The five souls of the Reformation tell us that. But you get what I'm trying to say. Yep. Um, Nick, thank you so much. God bless you, brother. I would love to have you, you back on. I know you're a busy guy, but um, I I thank you for your in-depth exegesis and talking through this with me because I find myself kind of moving to the middle of the road on some of this. And I'm a very extreme person and I tend to go towards extreme views and I'm trying to reel myself in on a lot of things and figure out, okay, what, what is the black and white that I need to hold? And what's the thing that I can go? Yeah. Yeah. It depends on how you look at it. Sure. Sure. And if I can, if I can say one more thing and then please do, um, so you asked, you know, like, what are, what are some things, you know, you know, and I, I gave a couple, you know, works, but honestly, I think the, 
first few things that you need to do is one, recognize that um, God is the ultimate author of scripture. When you do that, you will see that it is one unit. Amen. Um, and when we do that, we can start seeing the parallel passages as um, one historical event, um, at, at the very least. The second thing is, um, if we claim to be followers of Jesus, then we need to follow Jesus. That means we need to follow his, what he viewed scripture as. Stay honest so, us. Yeah, God breathed. Absolutely. And James White often says, we got to look at the Old Testament the way Jesus did. And I think he's dead on. Yep. I don't think exactly. that leads to theonomy, but I think he's dead on. <laughs> yeah, agreed. You know, and because, you know, uh, what did Jesus say about the Old Testament? He said, did, did, have you not read when God said to you? Yes, sir. Like, wait a second. No, he said that to Janice and Jambres. You know, he said that to uh, Pharaoh. That was Moses. Me. Yeah. Yeah. You know, but it's like, no, 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 no. When he said to you. So it's, so scripture is binding uh, as if God actually spoke it to you, um, which is very convicting. It uh, is. And then uh, we get into law and gospel. That's exactly right. Uh, and there's a really that's a fun that's a fun conversation (laughs) uh but then and then finally you know when we get jesus's view of scripture then we uh get to a point we see jesus and the apostles hermeneutic and um you know and i think there there was a book you know by a guy named abner cho love the guy like love his work but i i do think he's incorrect um in this because he does state that um, we cannot have a Christological view of the Old Testament when we're no, doing it. No, we have to. No, we have to. G- Jesus directly contradicts this. Um, yeah, I think, um, yeah, that's that's silly, man. I mean, I watched Chris Date de- debate a Unitarian named <laughs> Dale Tuggy, yep. and one of the proof texts Chris used as a, a platforming text was something Dale Tuggy had never dealt with before, and it was Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets. Okay, yep. now we know that's a whole Calvinism debate, but that aside, Jesus is talking as if he was active in Israel's history. Yep, yes he is. And it's it's quite a claim on Jesus's end. Yes, it is. Yeah, absolutely. So, so yeah, I, I think... When we have those three, that God is the ultimate author, what is Jesus's view of all of Scripture, and uh, what is Jesus's um, and the apostles' hermeneutic, you know, I, I may make a bold claim here. I think we'll ultimately get to um, a modified idealist hermeneutic. I, I, you can make bold claims. All, all, please do, man. I agree with you. Um, you know, my show focuses on trying to hear everybody out. But I have my nobody's neutral. <laughs> no, nope. I, I, I have my way of thinking and I believe my my soteriology and eschatology and ecclesiology and Christology, they all have to work harmoniously. And yeah. one can't like dig at the other in a weird way. Yeah. It's and a I seamless think, garment. Yeah, I think, you know, a coven a, a, even if you arrive at Pato Baptism, that's not the debate today. I think a basic covenantal hermeneutic gets you there in many areas. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. And 
and honestly, like, I think if we have, if we look at um, Jesus in the apostles hermeneutic, I think we get a covenantal structure. 100%. Um, um, and because of that, I think we get to um, amillennialism. I think we get to modified idealism. And I, you know, I'm going to poke at my Presby friends here, but I think you Credo get baptism. To, I think you get to credo baptism. Buddy, I agree with you. I have went round and round with my friends on it. I'm I'm kind of over the debate. I just I I am where I am. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I have a lot yeah. of dear Presbyterian pastors and friends in my life who I think oh, are same. standing on the word of God tremendously. Oh, they're going to um, be closer I, to the throne than me. 100%. Sure. I just disagree on ecclesiology and ordinances. Absolutely. But but you and I both can say that, you know, Heaven is a regenerate church membership. Yeah, and I, I, I'm sorry. I believe the New Covenant is that precursor to heaven's membership. Yep. And while I, I understand, um, I don't know if you got to listen to Doug Wilson and James White debate, Pato Communion, that was fun. Um, <laughs> while I understand how Doug Wilson can be very convincing on these things, it ultimately comes down to who's in the New Covenant. Because... Yep. And then they, it gets hard because it's like, well, you at least affirm, Mr. Baptist, Isaiah, that you're currently going to church with people who are in your church that aren't going to heaven. And I said, yes. Yes. But they're not in the new covenant. <laughs> yes, correct. They're not in the new covenant. Correct. They're hanging out with the community, but they're not. Christ is not interceding for them. Correct. Until you can convince me Christ is interceding for those he fails to save. I will not be a credo. I will not be a pedo Baptist. Yeah, I, I, I agree. Like, I can't see how, and this is moving beyond the you're, you're, dude, it's, dude, we can go, I, this is my show. We, <laughs> we go all around. Okay. We it's do it. true. You know, I, I don't see how you could say, um, uh, that the new covenant atonement actually saves. Perfectly. Perfectly. And then say that, uh, covenant children could be in the covenant and then leave the covenant. Right. And I, the, the most convincing argument I've heard, and I, I give him this, I, I've read some, uh, was it Brandon Adams? I think Brandon Adams responded to this. They go to these texts where the branches don't produce fruit or yeah. Romans 11, don't get haughty because you can be uprooted too. And I, I that's, six. yeah, that's, I'll give it to you. On, on the surface, I was kind of getting convinced by that. I was like, well, is Paul talking about the covenant community? Or because my friend Tyler was saying, hey, this shuts up the Arminian, <laughs> but it also shuts up the Credo Baptist because the new covenant can, consi can consist of unbelievers. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I don't see that um, because when you look at uh, the text, I don't. When you look at the text, it talks about um, the old covenant being members being cut off. You okay. don't see any new covenant members actually being cut off. There is a there is a statement against, hey, you should. But there's be a threat. Prideful. There is a threat. There, absolutely. Um, however, when we look at it, there's the threat um, while there. Um, doesn't seem to apply to individual um, believers. Mm -hmm. Rather, it seems to apply to 
Gentiles as a whole, because that seems to be what the natural branch is speaking about, right. Jews as a people, and then the um, then the cult or the um, wild branch is the Gentiles as a people, and thus this brings us back to eschatology here. Thus, when you see uh, Gentiles and Jews, um, one tree as one tree, mm-hmm. and in and Romans uh, eleven says, and in this way. All Israel, All Israel shall be saved. Yeah. In what way? When the Gentiles are grafted in. Right. Yeah, so I, that amen. I'm 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 with you on that text. So Romans eleven can't really be a shot against credo baptism because it's talking about peoples. Uh, and 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 you you're a thoughtful Calvinist. You're not saying Romans nine eleven is only individual election. It's not. There are corporate. There's corporate themes in there. Of course. But what we're saying is individuals make up a corporation. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Exactly. So um, I, that that's just bad bad arguments I've heard against my view of Romans 9. It's like, well, you just guys don't see any corporate. No, we do. But we, but we believe that within a body is people, individuals, and, and a relationship with God is a single – it's a single thing here, and it's, it's elected uh, uh, individually, unconditionally. But a people group was moved into the people of God, no doubt. That's what the New Testament's about. Yes. Yeah. And, I mean, I brought that up earlier with the unfolding uh, throughout the book of Acts. Yes. We see Jews, Samaritans, God-fearing Judeans, uh, and then Gentiles. Or, to borrow Acts chapter 1, from Jerusalem to Samaria to Judea to the ends of the earth. Right. Well, just just listeners, I know we just went on, but that that's what I we're trying to say is that eschatology. While I it think really affects we, everything else. Yeah, we, we yeah. put a pretense up and I'm guilty of this, too. We put a pretense up of, you know, we can all disagree on this. And I do believe we can, but it matters and it affects every other part of your theology. Yeah. And that's why I just I. I have rejected dispensationalism because of much of the reform thinking I took in over the last few years. It naturally led there, like you were saying. Yes, I went to some extremes and had to study my way in and out of things, but that's that's sanctification 101. Uh, but I've been committed to the sovereignty of God and, and salvation and that the new covenant really does something. The atonement really did something. And if I hold to those things, I think amillennialism pretty much flows from it. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I agree. I think, you know, amillennialism, again, I think pre-baptism flows yeah. from it. Like, because the new covenant members are truly saved. And they're not cut off from this. So I think see... you, Baptists are more consistent Calvinists. <laughs> I agree. That's a hot button. I know you told me that in the message. I was like, yeah, I don't know if I'd say that in front of my Presby friends, but. <laughs> oh, I do all the time. <laughs> but I'm a troublemaker. Yeah. But, but yeah, it, and, you know, I, I know I said uh, previously, you know, I had one last point, but the very last point is no matter like where your past is uh, in the sense of like your theological persuasions of the past, mm-hmm. don't 
you know, when you see inconsistencies, don't just get up and run the opposite direction. I've done that. Getting yeah. up and running the opposite direction is one, it's not helpful. Two, it's more dangerous than just staying where you're at uh, because then you're aimless. This is where the practical side of Sola Scriptura comes in. It's, yes. whoa, I'm seeing inconsistencies here. Let me go to Scripture. What does Scripture say about that? And it's, it's system inconsistencies from man. Yep. So I, I like that, Nick. Do you, you mind if I holster that 180 analogy for somebody someday and I'll, I'll, I'll give you the credit for it, but I really like that with analogy. With all my heart. Okay. Well, everyone, thank you for tuning into this, I know, long and technical discussion, but this is how it has to be talked about. This is why Nick made the time for this, and I do appreciate it so much. Until next time, folks, it depends on how you look at it.